On the four Sundays of Advent this year, we're looking at the fourfold title of uh, the, the Messiah that comes to us from a little poem in the book of the prophet Isaiah. He writes, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Today we consider that third part of the title, Everlasting Father, and in the Gospels, Jesus' identification with the God he always calls Father is complete and absolute, including this story from the Gospel of John. The authorities were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own Father, thereby making himself equal with God. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows the Son all that God himself is doing, And God will show him greater works than these so that you will be astonished. Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomsoever he wishes. And truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes, the one who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed over from death into life. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. As I said a couple of weeks ago, it's likely that this little prophecy from the book of the prophet Isaiah is predicting either the birth or the coronation of good and crafty king Hezekiah, who around 700 BC saved the city of Jerusalem and the Vermont-sized country of which Jerusalem was the capital from menacing barbarians to the north, the Assyrians, who were crashing the city gates about 700 years before Jesus. Now, Christians, of course, couldn't help but apply this prophecy to another son of David, 40 generations removed, who was born under humbler circumstances to a pregnant teenager and her peasant husband, who, unfortunately, was not the baby's father and whose lack of strategic planning led to his hasty birth in a cattle stall in the tiny town of Bethlehem, just a couple of miles outside the capital city. So this Advent, we've been studying that fourfold description of Messiah so that we might discover what Isaiah is trying to tell us about the one who came down to a manger and went up to a cross. Now, as I said, Jesus' identification in the Gospels with the God he always calls Father is complete and absolute, including the story I just read. The authorities are just ballistic with Jesus because he's doing work on the Sabbath. He's restoring sight to the blind. They give Jesus a hard time for breaking God's Sabbath laws. But Jesus responds by saying, I made the rules. I can break them. I and the Father are one. Whatever God does, I do. If you know me, you know the Father. The work I do is is the work of God, the work of the Father. And so Christians have applied this title, Everlasting Father, to this baby born at Bethlehem. But it doesn't quite fit the pattern of the other three titles for Christ, does it? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, those are metaphors which derive appropriately from the realm of 
court and palace. Those are big titles for Jesus. When your world is in trouble, what you need is a shrewd counselor to make your negotiations for you, or the strength of divinity, or at least the potency of a mighty emperor like Caesar Augustus, who crushed Antony and Cleopatra as if they were inconvenient pests. And you need a prince of peace when your world is crashing into chaos. But everlasting father, that's a bit smaller, isn't it? Gentler, kinder. Doesn't come from the realm of royalty and palace and court, but from family and home. But of course, the Messiah who saves, the royal in whose realm all the people flourish, would be loving and gentle, as well as wise, strong, and peacemaking. Karl Barth was, fine, was fond of saying that in Jesus Christ, God turns towards humanity with a friendly face. Yes, Jesus changes the whole demeanor and visage of God from stern warrior to loving father. And this royal loves all his charges with the unconditional love of a father for his children. All his children, not just the strong and the successful, but the weak and the vulnerable too. Not just the able-bodied, but the differently abled, the halt and the blind, not just the compliant and the obedient, but the recalcitrant and the rebellious. Not just the children who are his by right and birth and patrimony, but also the orphans he welcomes into his love. John and Alex were a young couple who had been married for a couple of years and they began discussing together whether they should start a family. And they wondered whether what was the greater good, the freedom to live your own life or the love of a home full of children. And then they had a son named Dylan. And Alex, the mother, said, as it turned out, I loved being a mother way more than I loved the freedom. And then they had a second child, a daughter named Eve, and her delivery was so difficult that at birth, Eve was essentially dead. Her Apgar scores were zero. She was a deep purple color. She has cerebral palsy, which is any disability caused by damage to the cerebrum just before or during the birth process. So many, maybe you know some children with cerebral palsy. Many of them can live relatively normal lives, right? Many of them can walk. Many of them can speak with a sort of rudimentary language. Some of them go to college and get jobs, but not Eve. Her disabilities are so severe that she will never walk or talk or feed herself. John and Alex feed her five times a day with a nutritional supplement. They rise at 5.30 every morning to get her ready for school. It takes about 40 minutes. The school bus stops at about 6.30. It would be easier for them to drive her to school, but they want her to mix it up with the other kids on the bus. And when somebody asks the mother Alex how she can deal with this, she just says, by the time I faced what was wrong with Alex, I loved her more than anything else in the world. Yes? The unconditional love we all have for our children. For me, the most moving movement among the honors paid by Americans to President Bush last week actually happened before the funeral when his body was lying in state in the capital rotunda. Thousands and thousands of Americans came by to pay their last respects. 
celebrity Americans and common Americans, high Americans and low Americans, rich Americans and poor Americans, captains of industry and domestics, Anglo-Americans and African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans, and thousands who didn't even speak the language. My daughter and almost son-in-law live in Washington, and my almost son-in-law wanted to pay his respects to 41. So at 11 o'clock in the evening, he pedaled his bike down to the Capitol because at that hour he thought the lines would be short, but he waited there for five hours and pedaled his way home at four in the morning. Also, many Americans in wheelchairs. Did you see it? We take this so for granted. There are 83 steps into the U.S. Capitol building. In March of 1990-60, differently abled Americans threw their wheelchairs and canes aside and started climbing those 83 steps. Eight-year-old Jennifer Keelan, a second grader from Denver with cerebral palsy, gets out of her wheelchair and starts climbing those steps. I'll take all night if I have to, she said. Five months later, in July 1990, President Bush signs the Americans with Disabilities Act. Let the shameful wall of exclusion finally come tumbling down. It was the second wall that crumbled on his watch. Now this president forged a fair peace with our bitterest enemy during the Cold War and chased a monomaniacal tyrant back into his hidey hole in Baghdad, but it could be that his greatest accomplishment was the ADA. The unconditional love of a leader slash father for all his children. Frederick Buechner puts it like this, the claim of Christianity is that at a particular time and place God came to be with us, God's self, when Quirinius was governor of Syria in a town called Bethlehem. A child was born who, beyond the power of anyone to account for, was the high and lofty one made low and helpless, the one who inhabits eternity, comes to dwell in time, the one whom none can look upon and live is delivered in a stable under the soft indifferent gaze of the cattle. The Father of all mercies puts himself at our mercy. Year after year, the ancient tale is told, raw, preposterous, and holy. And year after year, in some measure, the world stops to listen. It was a profoundly human event, the birth of a human being by whose humanness we measure our own humanity a human being with a face who, though none of us have ever seen it, we would all likely recognize it because for 20 centuries it has been of all faces the one that our world is most haunted by. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.